I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, The Real Bling Ring, Hollywood Heist. A year-long crime spree. A ring that targeted Hollywood's rich and famous Orlando Bloom. Lindsay Lohan. Paris Hilton. We've got video. Two million dollars in jewelry. And a large amount of narcotics. Horrified and disgusted by what they did to me. Today, we're talking to director Miles Bladen-Ryle. Teenager Nick Prugo and his friend made off with cash and luxury items after a series of burglaries of the Hollywood homes of A-list celebrities. They slipped undetected in and out of the houses of Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, and other stars just by watching their social media. The group expanded to include others like Alexis Haynes before the cops came knocking. They became known as The Bling Ring, and their exploits were made into a book and a movie. But their stories didn't end there. In the real bling ring, we go inside the crimes and wild times of these star-studded burglars who preyed on the famous while seeking fame for themselves. I've always been the type of person to kind of do whatever I had to get what I wanted, but I never thought in my wildest dreams that it would reach the level of criminality that it did. And I'm joined by director Miles Bladen-Ryle. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, Miles. Thanks very much. I'm very happy to be here. So there's already been a book and a motion picture on this story. Why were you interested in making a documentary about it? It's quite difficult to give quite a pithy answer to that, but I'll do my best. I think basically because um, when I first was talking to the production company about making the program and read the treatment and then started reading around the subject... It seemed to me that there was probably more to the story than had been reported, had been shown in the movie, had been written about in the book and the articles and in the press. It appeared to me that potentially um, a lot of the reporting had been somewhat reductive and somewhat um, simplified in terms of the motivations behind why these young people did what they did. And I think I was interested to understand not only what their motivations are, but also how they arrived at those motivations. First, there's Nick Prugo. Along with Rachel Lee, he went from petty theft to stealing cars, which, you know, I was surprised to see that the stealing cars thing was not on the table legally, (laughs) ultimately. Um, Then he masterminded burglaries of celebrities' homes and hauling in tens of thousands of dollars worth of merchandise. He says he got started because all the kids at his high school were rich and he was dropped off in a Honda. But it's more complicated than that, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, it, you know, that it's a good point you make, because I think part of what I wanted to do was take a deeper dive into this story and to really sort of get at how their motivations came about. And I suppose in a, in a news story, you know, you only have a certain amount of time, you know, either a certain amount of, of, of paper to fill or pages to fill or, you know, time to fill in a, in, you know, on video. But so, you know, to a certain extent, we, you know, we also suffer from that because there's, you know, there's only a certain amount of, of time that we have to fill uh, when making documentaries. And so, you know, we did our best to pack the series as much as possible with the social and cultural context in which these crimes occurred, but also 
their, you know, these young people's kind of personal circumstances and upbringings. And so the, you know, the bit of um, the series that you're referring to, you know, I think, you know, you could probably make a whole hour about Nick's backstory, about Alexis's backstory, because they're very complex. And, you know, they had a lot going on. You know, we sort of touch on sort of Nick's early uh, life uh, before the crimes occurred. You would literally see Mercedes, Range Rovers, Porsches, BMWs. My mom was dropping me off in a Honda. You know, you feel like you're sticking out and not in a good way. There's a lot more there, but, you know, unfortunately you can't go, can't spend as much time as maybe you um, might want to on that because, you know, there's a lot of story to tell and you only have a certain amount of time to tell it. Yeah, I was definitely left wanting more of Nick. I found him to be so candid. It was incredible. Also, by the way, Alexis Nyers, very candid. After the divorce... We probably moved nine times. I was like a needy, broken, damaged kid at that point. And I was really angry. Unlike Nick, though, she was already on a path to fame um, at this point. She was doing some pinup modeling. She was making connections of a sort. Her family was about to get this reality show, maybe. But she wasn't as involved in the burglary ring as she was portrayed in the movie The Bling Ring. Was that her motivation for taking part in your documentary was sort of clearing up the record about her involvement? Yeah, I think so. It was definitely to a certain extent, you know, I think there's, you know, there's been a lot about various reporting, as you mentioned, about Alexis, you know, part in the bling ring. And certainly with the movie, I think that was probably the biggest one, the Sophia Coppola movie, because, you know, the, I suppose the most famous actress in the film at the time was Emma Watson, who played Alexis character. And so, you know, just that, piece of casting alone gives the impression that, you know, Alexis was more involved than she was. And uh, certainly I think, you know, in the film, you see Emma Watson going into Paris Hilton's house, for example, and Alexis didn't ever go to Paris Hilton's house. Um, Alexis took part in one burglary and she, you know, talks very candidly about that. And, 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 you know, also in the third film, you know, she talks about the sort of press motivation for, uh, you know, sort of taking photos of her and, you know, and writing stories about her because she she had a reality show coming out. And so that's obviously a good story for them. And so, yeah, I think ultimately Alexis was keen to do this series to sort of clear up exactly what happened and and sort of tell the truth from um, how she sees it, I suppose. One thing that's interesting is that you disclose to the audience right up front that we're meeting unreliable narrators. Um, I assume you're talking about Nick and Alexis primarily when you say that. As a documentarian, how do you deal with two main subjects who are both unreliable narrators? How how did you decide, first of all, to disclose that to the audience so plainly? And then how do you decide to deal with it when you're talking with them and on also when you're editing the documentary? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I suppose, you know, from my point of view, I'm no authority on their truth. And so what I'm trying to do as a you know documentary maker is, you know, I'm trying to get as close to the objective truth as possible. But truth is a truth is a is a funny thing. And you can absolutely someone can absolutely be telling the truth and, you know, get the facts wrong. You know, that's the way truth obviously works. And so the way that I dealt with two contributors who had different accounts of what happened in certain places, in certain parts of the story, was to basically respect what they were telling me. And so in the uh, pre-production phase, when I was doing research calls with them, 
they're the only people that know what really happened at the time. And so I have to put my faith in them to a certain extent that they're telling me the truth or they're telling me their truth, as it, as it were, um, their subjective truth. And then obviously it's my job to then you sort of go out there and look at evidence and do other research and try and corroborate what they're telling me to get as close to the obje- the objective truth as possible. And so I suppose the way that I dealt with it then in, in the filming process, in the production was, and you see this in the film, is I put each of their accounts to the other so that they can then respond to the other person's account. Like I remember bits and pieces of what happened, but not all the way through because I was under the influence of opiates and benzos. (laughs) Alexis was not out of it. Alexis was more than sober and more than aware. They make entertaining scenes, but I think they also display something else that's, that's sort of going on. Ultimately, it's not for me to decide who's telling the truth. You know, my job is simply to, as I've said, get as close to the objective truth as possible and, you know, work hard to get there through their accounts, as well as the sort of evidence that surrounds their accounts. And then it's up to the audience to decide what they think. So let's talk a little bit about the crimes. Um, The first target was the home of Paris Hilton, who was the uh, prototype for the famous for being famous celebrity. Nick and Rachel really walked into a home that was over the top in unironic opulence. It was like a store, basically. And I'm, I'm curious, what does it say that they could rob Paris Hilton's house multiple times and she either didn't notice that items were missing or she did notice they were missing and just chose not to report those crimes of those items being missing? What do you think about that? Well, I guess that, you know, this is one of the, the one of the key questions from the first film. And, you know, I think certainly from Nick's point of view at the time of the crimes, you know, I guess it gave him the impression if either Paris hasn't noticed that anything's missing or she doesn't care that anything's missing, it doesn't really matter if he takes the things that he wants. And, you know, I think he's, you know, to a certain extent, you know, it could be classed as a victimless crime. However, you know, clearly that is, you know, that is not the case. And, you know, that that might be the sort of starting point that, you know, we, we start at in the first episode to sort of give the audience the impression of what these young people felt and thought at the time. But as we move through the series, you know, I hopefully it becomes clear that, first of all, no one has the right to enter your home and no one has the right to take anything that you know, belongs to you because it's, you know, it's not only a, a sort of a violation of your personal space, your home is your sanctuary. And to know that people have been in it or could get in it at any time, you know, is very frightening to people. It's interesting because then they make this leap from breaking into reality stars' homes to breaking into actors' homes. You know, they re- see Rachel Bilson and then, of course, Orlando Bloom, which creates one of the most memorable sections of the series. This is when Nick and Alexis describe this Orlando Bloom break-in and they completely contradict each other on key points. Did you know you were going over to Orlando Bloom's house? That night, no. I wasn't aware of whose house it was that night. <laughs> Alexis was very much aware that she was outside Orlando Bloom's house. No. Oh, well. You might say that Alexis is minimizing her role, and you might think that Nick has an axe to grind against her. Did you struggle with how to deal with that in the editing process when you were putting it together? 
No, I wouldn't say I struggled with it because I think, you know, if anything, it was it was it was really interesting for us to sort of have to grapple with um, because, you know, you had two people that were there at the same time and were giving two different accounts. And so if anything, it just sort of highlighted a few sort of interesting things that we felt were important in the show. You know, one is about sort of subjective truth, uh, objective truth memory, and then potentially how you want to be perceived, you know, now as well as then. So, you know, I think without asking direct questions about those things, you know, that scene was sort of getting at a few different sort of threads that we were sort of interested in exploring. So by the end of the second episode, the police have acted on this phone tip to the police and everyone gets arrested. This is the point where the storytelling in the book and the movie end. So what's the most surprising thing that you reveal in chapter three of your documentary? Oh, good question. In the third film. Um, the most surprising thing. I can tell you what I think. I think it is. Go on. Yeah, go on. Go for it. <laughs> I think it's the extent to which people who are involved in law enforcement and uh, and the lawyers on both sides of the case, especially on the uh, defense side of the case, became involved in the media around the the crime itself and that, how that corrupted the criminal justice around the crime. I was very surprised to learn that. that you're right. I mean, that is very surprising. I mean, I suppose, yeah, I mean, the, the what we wanted to sort of point out I suppose in the third film was that everyone was very keen to point at these kids and to you know talk about how awful they were and you know how awful what they were doing was and how they were sort of these spoiled entitled celebrity obsessed young people um without you know without any nuance whatsoever and without really thinking about why it was they perpetrated these crimes What's interesting to me, I suppose, is this sort of idea of social and cultural culpability. You know, we all take part in our society and culture. And, you know, I'm not here to say that these young people don't need to take responsibility for their actions or that they are not responsible. They're absolutely responsible for what they did and need to be held accountable. You know, part of, I think, where their motivations came from were the society and the culture that they grew up in. And as members of that society and culture, you know, do we need to think about our role in perpetuating these sort of myths around celebrity and the importance of material possessions in terms of our, you know, sort of personal value? More specifically to your point about the sort of law enforcement and lawyers getting involved in the story Again, you know, everyone was everyone was very keen to point at these kids and sort of chastise them for being these sort of celebrity obsessed, spoiled teens. It didn't take much for the adults who were surrounding them, you know, the lawyers, the police officers, etc., to get swept away with the celebrity themselves. Yep. If responsible adults are susceptible to the lures of fame. You know, I think to a certain extent, we need to give young people, especially, you know, these young people, at least the time of day to explain themselves and not to judge them too harshly for what they did. Or, you know, at least, you know, does that make sense? 
Absolutely. And it seems to me, too, that some of the adults advising the kids perhaps let them continue to be motivated by something other than legal peril. So Alexis is thrilled she's going to be in Vanity Fair. And the prosecution is like, that's a terrible idea. No lawyer would let their their client speak to a magazine and perhaps, you know, have them reveal something that would make them look worse. Nancy Joe, this is Alexis Myers. I'm calling to let you know how disappointed I am in your story. How horrible you me. You and lied. You stopped. You, you lied. Stop it. Show it. Stop it, you Mom. Lied. Stop. And then, of course, instead of obtaining the best criminal attorney his family could afford, Nick's priority was to get the slickest one he could find, and he paid the price for that. I didn't want an old geezer with a pot belly, even if that was the best attorney in town, to represent me. I wanted somebody that looked flashy and looked good. The image was more important almost than the qualification. So do you think that they were ultimately driven by vanity when they were defending themselves, pursuing their legal case, or were they driven by common sense? Did did you see that vanity taking over when you were looking at the legal process here? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, any young person getting approached by a well-known publication is going to be very flattered by, by that. And in our culture and in our society, it is deemed very valuable to, to get the sort of attention you get from fame and celebrity. And so when you come from a difficult background where perhaps you don't have this, you know, the, the best sense of self-esteem or best sense of self-worth, when, when, when a publication comes along that's going to put you in the spotlight, you know, I imagine it's quite difficult to turn that opportunity down and not only not turn that opportunity down, to get very excited about that opportunity because in our culture, it is deemed valuable to be famous and to get the sort of attention you get when you're a celebrity, no matter what, you know, and so it's, you know, it's not surprising to me that Alexis agreed to, as a sort of a 17, 18 year old girl agreed to take part in this Vanity Fair article. However, clearly she was surrounded by adults that should have had her best uh, interest at heart. And, you know, we're talking about her mother, her lawyer, you know, these TV producers, you know, these, these, were, these were all grown adults that perhaps should have had a better idea than Alexis um, about wh- which angle this magazine article was going to take. And even if, you know, they didn't, they're in the middle of a, they're in the middle of a legal case and, you know, Alexis is out there, um, you know, talking freely to a journalist about herself. Um, you know, it doesn't sound like the best idea. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, the people around her, you know, I think Jeff, her lawyer, admits himself that, you know, he, again, got quite swept away with the attention that he was getting from this case. And so, he, you know, he made, he, he came to Alexis with this opportunity uh, to take part uh, in this in this article, ultimately he says that it was Alexis's decision. But I think the 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 adults that surrounded Alexis at the time need to take uh, you know a large portion of the responsibility for her doing that article, even though if it, you know even though it was her that ultimately agreed to it.
There is this recurring theme about fact and fabrication in your, in your documentary, you know, that uh, recreation of the arrest that they, you show in the reality show that the Alexis's family was participating in, that her lawyer, you know, acted in that scene where he told her that everything was going to be okay. Um, and in, in your at the end, in order to um, prove your point about the verisimilitude of what we see, you end with this complete visual fake out. You reveal that all of the interviews that you showed us taking place in these lovely homes and law offices and beautiful settings were actually done in front of a green screen. Brilliant. Uh, Real fake out moment for me. Tell me how you came to that creative decision. Two things I would say. First of all, um, having, you know, on the, on the practical side, having made, you know, a lot of documentaries, I know how long it takes to travel to and from a location, set up, pack down, what have you. And you often lose a lot of time doing that. And the important thing with this series was that we wanted to spend as much time as possible talking to each contributor to really get under the skin of what happened. So I didn't want to lose valuable minutes sort of traveling to and from you know, multiple locations because we got, we had a tremendous amount of contributors to interview. So we wanted to invite them to a studio so that they could come to us so that we could be set up and ready to go. So that's just on the practical side. Deciding to film in a studio, what that offered us is, you know, an opportunity to do something interesting. And, you know, the one thing that we were very keen on was, or the one thing that I was very keen on was to viscerally give people an experience at the end of the film that makes a point uh, or that, you know, sort of ties everything together and sort of tries to make the point that, that, that we're trying to make with the series. And especially in the third film, you know, we start to explore this idea between reality and fiction, as you mentioned, you know, Alexis gets to a point where she's not even sure what's real and what isn't. And to me, that sort of spoke to, what's going on today with Mm. social media and the fact that, you know, I've got a young niece and nephews, a young daughter now who's an infant, but it's, you know, it's quite troubling, I suppose, to see that when young people are sort of comparing themselves to each other, for example, they're not even sure if what they're seeing is even real. So they don't know whether or not they're comparing themselves to anything real, not that they should be comparing themselves to other people anyway. And so what we really wanted to illustrate was this, how, how easy it is to sort of manipulate uh, an audience or other people and to give people this feeling that is a sort of, uh, you know, at the moment where the green screen is revealed. And that feeling itself is sort of a metaphor for, you know, what's going on today with, you know, social media, et cetera. Well, I was completely fooled because at some point you actually show him looking out of a window and you do show exterior shots of where you're filming. So it was really a a great trick. In the end, we hear Nick and Alexis take responsibility for their actions, um, but they both sort of couch it with this, yeah, but. This narrative that we were just these celebrity crazed, self-obsessed teenagers absolutely relieves any onus on the culture and the society that created that obsession in the first place. Is that really taking responsibility for their actions, you think? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, it's it's something that we've sort of wrestled with, I suppose, as we've been making this program, because in our society, the one thing that we all want from other people that, you know, perpetrate crimes or do, do things wrong is to take responsibility for what they did and to sort of own it, you know, and to move on. And 
I think the thing that I was interested in is that, you know, and having done a lot of true crime, I'm very interested in how people, not only the motivations for crime, but how people arrive at those motivations. And I think it's obviously it's, it's quite easy just to have them say, I'm really sorry for what I did. It's completely my fault. And, um, you know, I shouldn't have done it. But actually, I think it's far more complicated than that. You know, it, just in this interview, we've been talking about the, you know, adults that surrounded these young people um, during the trial and how they, you know, uh, were susceptible to the sort of lures of fame and attention just as much as these kids were. And, you know, if you've got young people surrounded by adults that are, you know, not behaving in the way that you might hope they would, you know, do they have to take a certain amount of responsibility for what's occurring to these kids? Like, for example, the Vanity Fair article, is that completely Alexis's fault that she took part in that? Or do the adults around her need to take some of the responsibility for the, that decision that she made. And so mm-hmm. that's also sort of analogous to the crimes. You know, we all live in societies whereby we are, you know, supportive of the, you know, this sort of celebrity culture. And we all want, you know, a lot of people are sort of keen on getting that sort of attention. And so I think I, I was sort of keen to allow room for the possibility that it's not just you know, it's not as simple as somebody saying it's all my fault and I shouldn't have done it, but actually to think about why it was that they felt that they could do, could perpetrate these crimes. And Mm. so it's not passing the buck and it's not saying that they shouldn't take responsibility for their actions. But I guess in the end, all that, you know, I was trying to say at the end of the series was that there's a bit more nuance than just these are celebrity obsessed teens that wanted things they couldn't afford and went and took them. You know, I think yeah. it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. And yeah. hopefully, you know, at least at the very least, it will provoke people to, you know, talk about that, even if they don't agree with it. Final question for you. A lot of people in this series talk about their takes on celebrity culture, because, of course, that was the moment in time where it was sort of coming up and becoming a thing. One of the most surprising takes we hear on it is from Paris Hilton herself at the end there on the red carpet. I think when people watch this film, they're definitely going to see just what our culture is like and just how celebrity obsessed it is and things need to change. People need to have, you know, more important priorities and other things to aspire to because this is crazy. (laughs) What is your take on celebrity culture after making this documentary, in particular, that kind of celebrity culture that is, quote, famous for being famous? So, I mean, I guess personally, what I think is that the reason that people become famous has changed over the years. And, you know, nowadays, if you're willing to sort of go on television and, you know, behave outrageously and get a following, then you're famous or, you know, on social media or wherever it is. And I think there's a certain toxicity to that, you know, like in the UK, you know, to get a bit serious for a minute, you know, in, a, in the UK, there's, a num- there's been a number of suicides of contestants of reality shows. It's really, really sad. But when you really think about it, you know, potentially not that, not completely surprising because suddenly you're thrusting these people that have never had that sort of attention into the limelight. And, you know, for a certain amount of time, they get the spoils of fame and the attention of fame, and they're completely ill-equipped to deal with it. And suddenly, 
you know, in, in many cases, it can be taken away from them. And in a society where we put so much value on fame and material possessions and money um, and attention, if suddenly you've got it and then you don't, you know, I, I can imagine that that would have a, or could have, you know, serious repercussions, especially if you sort of struggle with mental health issues, which obviously these days we know many people do. Suicide being, I think, the biggest killer of men under 40 in the West. You know, many people, you know, were famous for their talent, um, you know, be it acting or music or sports or uh, or art. And, you know, that came first, you know, it was the talent first. And then I suppose the the, the fame followed because obviously it makes sense if, if you're very good at something and people enjoy the thing that you do, you know, the attention will follow. Whereas nowadays it's sort of backwards. It's sort of, you know, I want to be famous first and it doesn't really matter what you want to be famous for as long as you're famous as long as people are looking at you as long as you can be seen that's what's important nowadays and that seems to me to be very toxic and to be very dangerous and i think the value that's put on fame and celebrity uh is very unhealthy and now is permeating through social media because you can now mainline that kind of attention through TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or Twitch or anything else, um, you know, as long as you can get people to look at you, that seems to be what's important. You know, as long as you can get people to pay attention to you, that's what people value. And, uh, you know, I think that's very dangerous because as soon as that attention goes away, where are you left? You're left feeling as though you have no value. Well, Miles, you have made a fascinating documentary series on a story I thought I knew something about, but turns out I knew almost nothing about. And it gave me a window into so many fascinating subjects, including reality, non-reality and fame. Thank you so much for making The Real Bling Ring. And thanks so much for talking to me about it. It was a lot of fun. Well, thanks very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Miles Bladen Ryle. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>